Hey everyone, welcome back to the second episode of the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. I want to start this podcast off by asking a question. The question is, have you ever thought to yourself, how could someone believe in a God that tortures and burns people for all eternity? Well, in the last episode, we went through many verses in the Bible showing why hellfire is not for eternity, why burning in hellfire is not for eternity, but rather an event that comes to an end. And we know that God is love. He is the definition of love itself. And he's also just, perfectly just. And he will recompense with a perfect balance for the unrepented sins committed on this earth. We learned in the last episode that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23, not eternal life for the wicked. We also learned that it was Satan's first and oldest trick in his book of deceptions when he said, quote, Ye shall not surely die in the book of Genesis when he was tempting Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, he's been using this, this trick for thousands of years because of how well it works. And if you haven't, please go check out the first episode to get more clarity and more understanding um, for this episode as well. In this episode, we will dive through Bible verses that are used by the majority and very popular um, preachers or teachers or priests or prelates or whatever they may be, though they may be honest men, they are used and twisted and manipulated to say that a loving God would punish people in torment and screaming pain and agony for as long as God is alive. But before that, I want to touch a bit on what happens when we die and why there are two resurrections, the Bible says. Uh, We're going to run through a few of these scriptures, but Lord willing, uh, I will do, we will do a full episode in the future, if that's where he leads us, then we will do that, um, about what actually happens when we die and what the state of the dead is. Because there's a lot of theories, a lot of questions, a lot of doctrines that people, you know, put out there and they say, oh, this is what happens when we die. And they take a couple verses here, a couple verses there and kind of make up a doctrine of their own. But we're going to go into the scriptures and get as many verses as we can on as we can on the subject and put them all together to see what the Lord is actually saying about the state of the dead. When we die, we are in an unconscious sleep. I'm going to take you through a few verses right now. In Ecclesiastes 9, verses 5, 6, and 10, this is what it says. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Verse 10. Whatsoever the hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Uh, it's Psalm 6, 5 says, For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? Psalm 13.3 says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Psalm 115.17 says, The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. Psalm 146.4 His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. Isaiah thirty-eight eighteen says, For the grave cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate thee, they that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. And in John chapter 11, verses 11 to 14, says, These things said he, Jesus speaking to his disciples, And after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. 
Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Mary even knew, uh, yeah, Mary, who loved the Lord, even knew that Lazarus wouldn't have been raised if, if Lazarus wouldn't have been raised from the dead by Christ then and there. Uh, he would have risen the last day when Jesus comes back. It says in Matthew 11, again, verses 23 and 24, Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I love how there's, the scriptures are so clear. There's no need to explain anything from these verses. The Bible does this clearly. And these are only a few verses. There is a plethora of verses about the state of the dead and what happened. There, these are only a handful. But these get the point across of what actually happens when we die. We're in an unconscious, the Bible calls it sleep. We don't know we're dead. We're in, we're in the grave. There will not just be one resurrection of the righteous, but there will be another resurrection of the wicked. So like I said earlier, there will be two resurrections. Going to Job 14.12. So man lieth down and riseth not till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. In Daniel chapter 12.2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. John 5, verse 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth. They that have done, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. We go to Revelation chapter 24 through 6. Revelation 24 through 6. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It's talking of the righteous. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. The other part to realize is that the first resurrection and the second resurrection are separated by the thousand-year millennium that most know. Some call it the thousand years, others just know by the millennium. But these resurrections are actually separated, separated by that thousand-year millennium. When Jesus comes back, the righteous dead will be resurrected to meet him in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4 13 through 17 says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Meaning in the grave, Apostle Paul is trying to say. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. After the saints rise and after the thousand-year millennium, this is when the wicked will be raised from the dead. Notice how Revelation puts it, how the Word of God explains it here. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 9 says, um, this is after the first resurrection, speaking of the righteous, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. We went over this verse earlier. This is the first resurrection it's talking about. When it says this is the first resurrection, it's meaning the, you know, the resurrection of the righteous. Then it goes on to say, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. 
the number of whom is of the as is as the sand of the sea. And they went up upon the breadth of the earth, and compassed the the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Notice how after the thousand-year millennium, Satan is loosed and immediately he begins to deceive the nations again. Well, the only reason that he can deceive these nations is because the wicked, he's deceiving the wicked, they have been raised from the dead in the second resurrection. And Satan is leading them, these wicked, raised wicked, he's leading them to attack the people of God and to surround the holy city, which is New New Jerusalem which actually comes down from God out of heaven right before this happens, Revelation speaks of. Yeah, when when John is saying he actually sees New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, he actually sees in vision. But then notice how their end will be. It says in the verse that we read just prior, quote, And fire came down, speaking of the wicked, from God out of heaven and devoured them. This is the event of hellfire. This is what's happening. This is hellfire. This is the event of hellfire that the wicked are being raised from the dead to receive their just punishment, to receive their wages of sin, which we know Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And as we can see here, there are only two classes of people, the righteous and the wicked. There is no in between these two groups. The reality is you can either love and serve God or you can love and serve someone or something other than God, which in the end is Satan. Now, to, to some that may, may sound harsh, but there's no gray areas here. There's no on the fence. You're either in the Lord's camp, you're either with God, or you're against God and with Satan's camp. There's only two categories here. There's not, there's, it's good and evil. It's not five different options from, to pick from. No, it's, it's good, which is God, which is Christ which is the Holy Spirit, and then there's evil, which is Satan and his demons. Like I said, to some that may sound harsh, but let me bring you to the Word of God and just share with you a few verses confirming this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21 says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. And then in James 4, 4 says, Know ye not that the friendship of, friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And then Matthew 12, 20 says, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Whether you have lived your life righteously or lived your life wickedly, either way, you're going to rise again to receive your just reward. And is it, the question is, is it going to be a reward of eternal life if you're in Christ Jesus? Or is it going to be a reward of death if you're not in him? So now I want to dive into some commonly misunderstood hellfire verses and probably the most easily misunderstood verse about hell is John's allusion to the smoke ascending, quote, forever and ever in Revelation 20, verse 10. And this is what it says. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, if you just read this verse, and maybe a verse here or a verse there, or a couple other verses, it can seem, it may seem confusing to some as if someone was to say um, that hellfire is not for eternity, or it's not torment, or it's not forever. It may, it may seem confusing on the surface, but we know that as God's children we must take the whole Bible into account when trying to understand any doctrine, any what God is trying to tell us. We must take everything from Genesis to Revelation and, and search and, and dive into the 66 books of the Bible, the inspired sacred scriptures, 
and ask God for direction, ask him to help us, lead us, to lead us and to understand from here a little and there a little, you know, as Isaiah 28 says, and from line upon line and precept upon precept to make sure we're understanding his word properly and his will properly. And it's interesting too, the very verse before this verse where it says, you know, tormented forever and ever, it says, it's, it actually talks about the second death and when the wicked will be devoured. Here's what it says in verse 9 right before. And they, speaking of the wicked, went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now that language is very clear there as well. So on the surface, it, these seem to contradict. Why does it say tormented day and night forever, for, forever and ever? And then the verse before talks about the wicked being blotted out, talking about the, the wick, fire coming down from God out of heaven and literally devouring them right then and there. Well, they don't contradict, and here's why. For those who are unfamiliar with other uses of this phrase in the Bible, at first, like I said before, at first it may be confusing. But when opening the verses and looking through the Old and the New Testaments, looking for every clue, every hint, every verse of what certain phrases mean, the words forever are used 57 times in the Bible in reference to something that has already come to an end. In other words, forever does not always mean without end, and sometimes very short periods of time, in fact. For a couple of examples, for just a few examples, we're going to go to 1 Samuel one twenty-two. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up unto the child until the child be weaned. And then I will bring him up, that he may appear before the Lord, and there abide forever. Now, Hannah's child was not literally appearing in the house of the Lord before him for eternity. That wouldn't be true at all. We know that until he was not there, he, you know, he wasn't appearing before the Lord. But yet, 1 Samuel 1, you know, uses the phrase forever. Now, in Exodus 21, verse 6, it says this, Then his master shall bring him up unto the judges and he shall also bring him to the door, or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Now, forever here just means until he wasn't his master, or he wasn't employed under his master, or until he was no longer living. You know, of course, it doesn't mean forever as in for eternity, he's going to be serving his master. He's, he's going to be serving, he's going to be working and employed, being employed for him. No, it just means until he's no longer living or until he's no longer his, you know, no longer under him, working for him. Another example is from Jonah chapter 2, verse 6. It says, Jonah speaking, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. And Jonah says forever here when we know the period is only three days at most. We know it's three days. But as you can see, this, of course, forever is not, once again, it's not eternity, but it's rather a period of three days. Forever can mean different things, all dependent on the context. And even today, think about this. Even today we, see, we say things like, oh, I've been in traffic forever. Or in a marriage, we tend to say that a spouse is your forever when we know that it is until death do each other, you know, death do you apart, basically. It's until you're no longer, one has deceased, one has, one has died, passed, and um, that you're no longer married. That's, you know, but we say things like forever as a phrase. Or the last example, when we haven't seen someone in a while, we'll say, you know, I haven't seen you in forever. It's been so long. It's been forever, right? That's just another example that we tend to use when we know we say these things and we know what they mean, but we don't get how they apply, you know, biblically and what the Bible actually says in context of, you know, what that actually means. The next point we're going to go on to is unquenchable and eternal or everlasting fire also does not mean what we think it does. First of all, let's start off with Jude 1. I mean, there's only one chapter in Jude, but Jude 1.7, it says Sodom and Gomorrah suffered specifically from eternal fire. Now we're, let's go to verse Jude 1.7. 
even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, if you go to where Sodom and Gomorrah was, will you see Sodom and Gomorrah still burning today? The, you know, the easy answer would be, of course not, no. It's fire that devoured Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah to be no more for eternity. But yet the, f- the phrase eternal fire is being used. And with more verses to confirm this, Peter says it was turned to ashes. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, this is what it says. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. Now that's pretty clear, yet it says eternal fire. But again, most people already have an assumption of what eternal fire actually means. When Peter says, Sodom and Gomorrah suffered eternal fire, but what it means is they were devoured into ashes and they got, were condemned. And actually this is an example of what's going to happen to those who are ungodly. They're going to be destroyed into ashes, as Malachi says, Malachi chapter 4. But then we go on to another verse that confirms this in Luke 17, verse 29. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So again, the Bible is very clear here. Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah was an example, like I said, unto those who should live ungodly. Eternal fire simply means the results of the fire are eternal. Those results have been decided for eternity. You can't go back and change what has already happened. Sodom and Gomorrah was de- devoured or demolished, and still, they're still in ashes. If you go to the site and look at the site, literally, if you go there, you'll see that it's still literally in ashes. The results of the fire are eternal. It's not that the, f- the fire, the flame itself, is burning for eternity. It's simply the results. Now, let's, let's go to Jeremiah seventeen twenty seven. It says, But if ye will not hearken unto me to hollow the Sabbath day, and not to bear a burden even entering in at the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then will I kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Again, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, is Jerusalem still burning today? And we can once again answer, no, of course not. Jeremiah says it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem. But then he goes on to say it cannot be quenched. And these do not contradict. It's a fire that consumes and cannot be put out or quenched by anybody. We can't put it out because God is the one who kindles it. It simply burns until the fuel is consumed. It's the same with these three verses in Mark. If there is fuel for the fire, it will not go out. However, nobody can put it out because it is kindled by God. The fire is simply there, or the fire burns, until the wicked are dead and gone. In Mark chapter 9, verses 44, 46, and 48, this is what it says, Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. That's simply what it's saying. When there's no fuel, there's not, the fire is still going to be happening when there's fuel. If the wicked are still alive, there's going to be fuel. But once there's no fuel, the fire goes out. There's just ash left, and that's it. Going to Luke chapter 3, verse 17, says, whose fan is in his hand, and he will throughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Notice, here's another verse that says fire unquenchable, and notice this, what does throughly purge his floor actually mean? Well, if you look at the phrase, and you look at um, what it means, that specific thing means, it means actually to cleanse and remove. It means to like do away with completely, to totally remove it and to purify, to purge. And we know that sin will be no more. And praise the Lord for that. All wickedness, all sin will be destroyed. And it also uses chaff in this verse when it says, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And chaff specifically represents symbolically in the Bible, it represents the wicked. I'm just going to bring you to one verse. Psalm chapter 1, verse 4 says, The ungodly are not so, 
but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. And in Matthew 25, verse 41, it says, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And like we said on the last episode, think of even natural fires. The fire burns until there's no fuel, then it, it then becomes ash. And But unlike, here's the difference, unlike natural fires that can be put out with deterrent or water or whatever can put it out, you know, that we have available to us, God's fire, God's fire cannot be quenched or stopped by anything or anyone because he is the one who has kindled it. And his, it's, it's a result of his wrath. It's a result of his justice that wages will be recompensed in a just balance because he is justice, because that's his character. Another verse going on, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, it says this destruction is everlasting. It lasts for eternity away from the presence of the Lord because they are simply no longer living. The very definition, if you look at the Strong's, um, the very definition in the Strong's Concordance, uh, G3639, and from the Dictionary of Destruction itself, it says, quote, the act of destroying, ruin, or death. Another verse that is used to support eternally burning hellfire is Matthew 25, verse 46, it says this, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And again, just like the verses before, everlasting punishment or everlasting fire does not mean what we think it does. Um, And by preconceived ideas and assumptions and already made up, people's minds being made up when they go and, and they look these verses and they see these verses you know, whether being taught that from their youth or whatever it may be, here, you know, it's just a punishment that the results are everlasting. It's not a continual punishing. No, it's a punishment and the results are everlasting. It's that simple. And especially with matching it up scripture upon scripture with every other verse, it makes perfect sense. It's death that lasts for eternity. And remember the verses we shared last week about what happens to Satan or what what happened last episode that we talked about, that Satan is burned to ashes, never to be again, never to exist again, never to be seen again, never to be heard again or thought about again. In Ezekiel 28, when it's specifically said, he will be burned up in the sight of all those that behold thee. It's in Ezekiel 28. Now we go to Matthew 18, verse 8, says this, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life, halt, or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Now there's that verse again. Notice how Jesus says, or there's that phrase again, everlasting fire. Notice how Jesus says it's better to enter into life maimed rather than being cast into hellfire. It's because Jesus knows. He's the creator of us. He is the word himself. He is the word made flesh. The very word of God is Christ himself. Of course he knows what happens. He knew that hell is designed to, designed to destroy. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, this is what it says. And fear not, this is Jesus speaking, and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now that's, you know, that's pretty clear there. And we'll go to Psalm 21, verse 9 and 10. I know there's a lot of scripture, but I want to make sure that we let the Bible speak. Psalm 21, verse 9 and 10 says, Thou shalt not, I'm sorry, thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their fruit shalt thou destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the children of men. Again, The picture of a fiery oven is also being used here in Psalm 21, and we know that things in ovens don't burn for eternity, or they're not kept burning forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, but they burn until they're nothing or they're ash. We know 
that an oven burns things up. And it says, it notices the, the terms swallow them up and the fire shall devour them. And then again, thou shalt destroy them from off the earth. In one verse, we have four references. Four references in one verse to the wicked being destroyed, removed, to receiving their punishment of death. The earth will be a place for the righteous for eternity. And the capital of the universe will be on earth, New Jerusalem. And the reason why I'm saying that is because the earth, in order for this to happen, New Jerusalem to be on to be on this earth, the earth is going to be purified from all things of the past, from the wicked, from sin, from destruction, from the enemies, from demons, from everything. It's literally going to be purified and it's going to be made new because of hellfire. Hellfire is that event that brings that to pass, that makes that happen. And here's the verse, Second Peter, that confirms that. Second Peter 3, to 13 says this, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And that's exactly what's going to happen after that thousand years, is the earth is going to be purified. It's going to be made new. The righteous are going to dwell with the Godhead for eternity, with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit for all eternity, and sin, Satan, and wickedness will be no more. And isn't that a beautiful thing? That affliction, as Nahum 1, chapter 1, verse 9 says, Nahum says that affliction shall not rise the second time and weaken. That is a promise that God gives us, that sin will not rise a second time. And we can have confidence in God's promises because he never fails us. So praise the Lord for that promise. And also picture this a little bit. I like doing analogies. So let's go to a little analogy. And just picture this. Could a wife love her husband if he said, Honey, if you don't love me, I will torture you as long as you live. No, that, that, would not, that wouldn't produce love. It could actually cultivate foul fruits of fear and bitterness and hatred and all sorts of evil temptations and evil thoughts against your spouse because that's, we know that is not love. That is the opposite of love. That is hatred. If your husband or your spouse said, yeah, you have to love me or else I will hurt, I will torture you. I will, you're going to be in screaming pain for the rest of your life if you don't love me. No, that is not love. And just you can see how much this doctrine of the wicked burning in eternal hellfire, it just, it's not true. But even still, with all of this said, all of these scriptures, and these are, is not an all, all-encompassing you know, podcast to go over every single individual verse because there are so many verses on hellfire, so many verses on what happens to the wicked. This is only a small section in it, and it's you know, full of things, verses that are making it quite very, very clear of what God is saying. But even with all that said, some may still be saying, but what about the parable in Luke 16? What about Lazarus and the rich man and what Jesus was speaking about in this certain parable in Luke 16? So let's go into that. Luke 16, 19 to 31. I'm going to read the whole thing. Here's what it says. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, 
and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus, Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, first thing, is, first thing to note is that this is indeed a parable. Jesus is speaking in order to get a point across, in order to make a larger, broader, he's trying to get a teaching and a point across. And it's pure, it's supposed to, and it's meant to be symbolic. He's using specific phrases and specific characters and specific themes in order to get a point and a teaching across in a parable. And nowhere in this parable do we ever get a hint of suggestion that it's a literal event. And if indeed this parable supports consciousness at death and separation of the soul at death or eternal hellfire, the greater portion of the Bible would have to be rewritten or thrown out. In this, if this parable indeed teaches these, teaches these things, as most suggest, it would plainly contradict Job, David, Solomon, Nehemiah, Paul, Jude, even Christ himself over multiple times over and over. But the point, like I said before, was Jesus was getting a point across. He was trying, he was teaching. That's what he does. The great teacher, the master was trying to teach. And we know that people in hell cannot talk to those in heaven. For Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. It could Because we know there will be new heavens, there will be a new earth. The former things will not even be remembered. We're not going to be thinking about pain or suffering or death or sin or destruction or anything. Tears. Our tears will be wiped away, as Revelation says. We're not even going to be thinking about those things. Of course, we're not going to be talking to people who are in hell right? So-called that people think hell is a place, right? The, but the point of the parable is this. The rich man represents the Jewish people, and Lazarus, the poor man, represents the followers of Christ. Although poor in goods and money, they desire to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, meaning they desired the words of life, and they desired the bread from heaven that was Christ himself that came and gave and taught to the Jewish people, which represents the rich man. Take, for example, these symbols. Take, for example, the sword of the Spirit. We know the sword of the Spirit represents the Word of God. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And in Ephesians 6.17, it says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We also know that this is not literal because Abraham's bosom is representing heaven. It's not, heaven is not literally Abraham's bosom. It's simply symbolic to represent heaven. And that's another clue to realize that it isn't literal. It is purely symbolic. But going on in the parable, this is what it says. I'm going to read another section. Quote, but Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus, Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they would not pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us, that would come from thence. Christ was teaching that Lazarus received evil things while on this earth, 
but the rich man good things. But now Lazarus is comforted while the rich man is lost. The same kind of goes with though the follower of the followers of Christ representing Lazarus, though we may be poor, though we may be lacking in goods or worldly gain or pleasures, or we may be lacking in things. In the end, God has in laid up riches in heaven. And we don't have to focus on spending our time trying to store up barns of gold or silver or money or have all these things when Christ has stored riches for us in heaven. We, we're going to get a reward when we get to heaven. And so that's Christ, that's what he's trying to um, teach here, that Lazarus didn't receive great things, and, but the rich man did receive good things. And the other reason why it says the great gulf fixed between them is meant to represent that it is not possible for them to switch, switch their circumstance or change positions of the results of how they live their life. The Jews lived their life thinking they were doing God's will, when in reality they weren't at all. They were rejecting God's Son. And the Jews also looked at the poor people or those who had sores like Lazarus, those who were at the gate, they passed by them. The poor, they forgot weightier matters like judgment and mercy, like God, like Jesus says. They forgot the weightier matters of the law and they would uh, swat it in that and swallow a camel, as the Bible says as well. But the point, Jesus, going on, the point was that the short lifetime we have, the great gulf is meant to represent that we cannot change the results of our life that we have lived. We have one chance. The short lifetime decides our eternity, and we must prepare now. That's the important thing. There is no second probation, meaning there is no second chance. When you die, you pass through that final barrier called death. And notice how the rich man called upon Abraham to save him by saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He didn't call upon, he didn't call upon Christ. He didn't call upon God. He called upon Abraham to save them, showing, revealing that he put his relationship to Abraham above his relationship with God. He was trying, the Jews, were, they relied upon their bloodline, they relied upon being the child of the seed of Abraham to save them, and not Christ. And we know that Christ is the one who saves. Jesus says there's neither Greek nor Jew for all are one in Christ Jesus. And he also goes on to say in Galatians 3.29, I might be paraphrasing a bit, but it talks about if ye are Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the, heirs according to the promise. So if we are in Christ, it doesn't have to be a bloodline. It has, doesn't have to be a seed. It doesn't have to be literal. It ha, it's symbolic. It's spiritual. If we are Christ's, if we have repented of our sins, if we have put our full faith and trust in Christ as our personal Savior, turned from our sins, and followed after him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. He then gives us a new heart, new desires, new everything to live for him and follow after his commandments. And no, just because we have grace, that doesn't mean we turn and start breaking his commandments and start. Paul says, are we to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. No, we don't turn. We don't say that just because we've been given grace, we're now free to do whatever we want. No. Freedom is not license to sin. Freedom is being set free from sin. It's being delivered from sin so you can live godly. That's the whole point. Christ is saying, he's teaching that the Jews were relying upon their bloodline, or relying upon the flesh, basically. It's what it is. They're relying upon the flesh to get saved rather than Christ. And then the parable goes on to say, Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they will not hear, if they will hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the, from the dead. And the rich man is saying, look, we didn't, I didn't get enough evidence if you could only send 
you know, I need more evidence. I need more examples to believe. I need more evidence and more reasons when in reality, the law and the prophets, they were given the whole Old Testament. Moses and all the patriarchs and the prophet testified of Christ. All throughout the sanctuary, you see the gospel message. When you come into the sanctuary at the east side of the gate, you turn from sin. You turn your, your, your back to the sun and say, no, I'm done with sun worship. I'm done with these things. And you go. The first thing you enter is the altar. When you get to that altar, you lay your sins. You burn your sins up on that altar. You say, God, I'm done with my sins. And in the sanctuary, then you continue. You go to the laver of bronze. You wash away your sins. It's meant to represent baptism. And the priest would wash before they went into the sanctuary, the holy place. And all, there's all these symbols within the sanctuary, like the showbread, the 12, 12 pieces of showbread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. But not only that, the priests would eat of the showbread every single Sabbath. And they would partake in the precious bread of life, which we know who that bread is. That bread is Christ himself. So all throughout the Old Testament, God was sharing the gospel through the Old Testament. It's interesting how people say, oh, the gospel wasn't in the Old Testament. The gospel was everywhere in the Old Testament. Every page, every word, every phrase, everything was the gospel in the Old Testament. It was showing Christ. The sanctuary pointed to Christ. All the symbols, all the, the fixtures within the sanctuary pointed to Christ. Everything. And even the gate, the gate of the temple, or the gate of the sanctuary around in the courtyard, the gate that was enclosing in the, in the courtyard, that gate represents Christ. Christ is the door. He is the gate in order for us to have salvation, in order for us to, to, to find eternal life. Christ, we have to go through Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We have to go through him in order to receive salvation. And that's what that gate was representing as well in the sanctuary. But the Jews were given ample evidence, plenty of evidence, testimony. And it's interesting that he said, you know, oh, if one raised from the dead, then we'll believe. When in reality, that happened twice. And they still didn't believe. They rejected completely. So Christ was getting a point, a specific point. He was, trying, he was getting across a teaching to the Jews of which they did not understand because they rejected him completely. But he was using these analogies and he was going so far above and beyond that, that he knew that people would not believe him literally, but yet people are using this, a parable, to confirm a doctrine which the Bible does not teach. And it's, it's just sad to see why it's, it's being twisted so heavily. And ending with this, John 8.32, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And wow, is that true? Knowing the truth truly does set you free. It sets you free in that even knowing upon, about this doctrine of eternal hellfire not being the case, of our God is just and perfect and merciful and full of grace, full of compassion, full of love, full of long-suffering and gentleness. And we know and we're confirmed over and over within his word that it is true. And it truly does set you free to know that truth. It gives you joy and peace and trust in your Father that He is good and He loves you and He cares about you. And so the unfortunate thing which said would happen, First Timothy 4 says, In the latter days the Spirit speaks expressively that there will be doctrines of demons and there will be doctrines of devils that will come out and deceive many and sway people in a way that goes against God. And the teaching of eternal torment has done more to drive people to atheism and hatred and confusion probably than any other invention of the devil. It's, it's right up there with one of his top deceptions. And it's a giant slander on the loving character of our tender Heavenly Father and has done incredible harm to the Christian cause. And remember this, just because the majority believe it, just because you've heard it from a pastor or a priest or a friend, does that mean it's true? Does that mean because 
the masses believe it, the majority, does that mean it's true? We must take the Bible and the Bible alone in order to understand our God's character, in order to understand who he says he is. We must understand that, no, people don't decide what's true. God's word decides what's true, and we can only rely upon the scriptures as a safeguard. If the standard is something other than the scriptures, then we are going to be led astray. We're going to be deceived very, very quickly. And that's the important thing to know. Scriptures have to be our safeguard, especially into the times that we're heading. In closing, God willing, Lord willing, as he leads, we will do an in-depth episode about what happens when we die in the state of the dead. I know I mentioned it in brief, went over actually, you know, quite a handful of verses that made it pretty clear, but there is so much more, so many more verses that confirm this truth. And like I said, Lord willing, we will make an episode on that. And thank you so much for listening. I pray I hope and pray this helps to clear some of the dense fog around this twisted subject that Satan so often likes to bring confusion and muddiness and so much garbage that you have to clean up in order, just like Nehemiah, that he was trying to build the temple and Sanballat was trying to hinder the work of God. But just like Satan does with these things, he brings rubbish and confusion and muddies the waters and brings so much fog that it can be so confusing. And I pray that as you study into this yourself, please go into the scriptures, pray for God's guidance. And as you do that, I pray that you will be blessed and that his Holy Spirit would guide you into all truth. You just listened to the Spirit of Prophecy podcast, where we, through the strength and grace of God, keep the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus, which is the Spirit of Prophecy. 